Okay, if you're just joining us, or if it's been a while, we've said we've gone for, for several months now at what is the Bible, okay? Understanding the Bible. And we've had these five main questions, all right? At the very end, you guys should know this by heart because we've gone through it quite a bit. The five main questions, what is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? What is the message of the Bible? Why can we trust the Bible? And how should we read the Bible? Today, we're finally going to draw to a close section three, which, by the way, has been my favorite section so far, and that is what is the message of the Bible. And, of course, in two weeks, we'll pick up with how can we trust the Bible. And I'm really going to, in the weeks ahead, give us all the reasons why we can proudly and confidently defend the authority of the Word of God in a world that is constantly trying to attack it. All right, so in the weeks to come, I'm going to give us good bullets for the chambers of our defense of the script of the authority of our, our holy scriptures. But as we draw this section to a close, we have looked at the message of the Bible from so many different angles. In fact, I've, I've used the example of we've used the, the telescope, the periscope, and the microscope. We've looked at the big picture of scripture. And then we've looked individually at the storyline from the Old Testament, the storyline of the New Testament. Last week, we took a look at where you can find Jesus throughout the entire Old Testament, pointing towards His fulfillment in the New Testament. And we said those things are called types and shadows. In the Old Testament, there are figures that are a type of Christ, and there are scenes that point to the need for a Savior or the prophecy of fulfilled salvation, and that's called shadows of Christ. So we saw these types and we saw these shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ. We showed that the entire Bible, all the way from Genesis to the end of Malachi in the Old Testament, points completely to Jesus Christ. So we can say that the Old Testament, even though it was written in Hebrew, it is, it is Christian Scripture. The whole Bible is a hymn book. It points to Him, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, so now we are getting to this time where we're going to be moving towards the end of this section in unit 3.6, and our unit is entitled Finding the Keys to God's Kingdom. Finding the Keys to God's Kingdom. So when we're talking about the message of the Bible, if there's one final thing I want to tackle tonight, it's this one unifying theme. All right, The Bible's about Jesus, but one of the threads that's woven through the tapestry that gets us to Jesus is the idea of the Kingdom of God. We don't always talk about that a lot, all right? But when you read the Gospels, if you see how many times Jesus Christ mentions the concept kingdom of God, it should trigger our hearts to say, this is an important concept, and we need to understand what it is. And so we're going to be looking at that here tonight. And so let's start from the top with number one, connecting the kingdom dots. Connecting the kingdom dots, okay? There's one final message that we'll look at, that we'll draw our attention to, this unifying theme. Your first blank there is the word kingdom. Okay, the first blank there is the word kingdom. We're going to be looking at the kingdom of God and connecting the dots again all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. All right, this is not something new, but it's something that sometimes we lose track of, but yet when we get to the Gospels, Jesus says, pay attention. The kingdom of God is here. This is really important. I want you to know what this is. And if Jesus thinks that it's important, then we need to think that it's important as well. So as we start to address this concept of God's kingdom, I think first we need to stop and we need to define what it is. Now, I have heard a ton of definitions. 
I had, uh, I'm, I'm upset he's not here tonight. I know he's still on the road, but Ronnie Sykes has been asking me a lot of questions recently about kingdom of God and how that can uh, transpire from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Is the kingdom of God in Israel separate from the kingdom of God to the church? And I said, no, it's one kingdom. And here's, here's, here's how we can define kingdom of God. Let's make it as simple as we can. In, in the book Gospel and Kingdom, there's an author named Grand Go- Graham Goldsworthy. Okay, And Graham Goldsworthy says this. You see it in bold under point one. The kingdom of God is threefold. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the kingdom of God. Let's not make it any more difficult than that. Again, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. When God created the earth, he had a desire to establish a kingdom where we would be, we would be with him. All right? We would walk where he walks. We would do what he says. And under his rule, we would receive his blessings. And how do we know that? Well, let's start with point two in getting a peek at perfection. All right, so this takes us all the way to the beginning. As we open up the book of Genesis and we see God creating the earth. And he creates the earth in six days. And at the end of the sixth day, before he rests, we get to the crown jewel of his creation. And that is human beings. We've talked about that a lot in this study. All right. All the things that God did was good. All the things that God made was beautiful. Everything that he had thought of doing that he did was perfect in every way. But the Bible says, as he says, everything is good. At the end of the six days when he makes human beings, he says it is very good. Okay, He puts the exclamation point. He says human beings have been, are now, and will always be the pinnacle and most important creature on the planet because we're the only creature made in his image. And that's really important. So let's get the idea of kingdom of God when it comes to human beings. So what does God do? He creates a beautiful garden. And this garden is a place of absolute paradise. Can you possibly imagine a world with no death, with no disease, with no tears, with no pain, with no separation, with full access to God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week? absolute perfection it is paradise with a capital p and that is what adam and eve enjoyed in this beautiful garden it really was god's kingdom because it was god's people living in god's place under god's rule and receiving god's blessing and the only thing that adam and eve were told to do was to tend the garden to take care of god's creation to have dominion over the the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. They were called to have dominion over all things, and they were given the tools to do all these things. And yet, all of a sudden, as it says in Genesis, we see that all these beautiful trees are popping up in the garden. They're good for food and good for pleasure. And God says, you can partake of any of these trees. But by the way, Adam and Eve, do not partake of the one right over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is the forbidden fruit. I do not give you permission to eat from that tree. If you want to live in my kingdom, you're going to live under my rule. And my rule says, yes over here, no over there. You can do all this. You can eat from all this. You can enjoy all this, but that tree is not for you. And we know, that we know what happens next. Adam and Eve disobey, and uh, things go awry from there. But before that happens, let's take a closer look. Your next blank is Genesis chapter 2. Verses 8 through 9. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Before sin enters the world, let's just listen to these words from Scripture. 
It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord had made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So think about the the concept of the kingdom of God. They're in a garden. It is good. There is no sin. There is no pain. There is no death, disease, or separation. And all these things that we need, God's given to us. In fact, I had a professor share this with me one time. He believes that when God was creating everything, He was creating it for His glory, but for the pleasure of man. All right, so the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the creeping things on the ground, he's creating all these things and saying, this is good, they're going to need this. This is good, they can enjoy this. This is good, this will be part of their journey as well. This is good, this is good, this is good. So when human beings are made, God says, this is very good. Now I've created the pinnacle of my creation and they're going to have dominion over everything else. That's the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, God had trees, and most of them they could eat from, and there's one that they couldn't. That leads us on to our next point, point number three, dealing with trouble in paradise. Dealing with trouble in paradise. All right, we know before sin there was just perfection in every way, and yet when sin enters the world, what happens? Everything spins out of control because for the first time, The kingdom of God is compromised because what did we say the kingdom of God is? God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Well, you had God's people who were in God's place, but when they disobeyed God, they were no longer under his rule. They wanted to have their own rule. They wanted to be their own God. They wanted to establish their own kingdom. And that's that's the worst thing that happened in, in, in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. They rejected the rule of God. They said, I'm not living under your kingdom because I heard that if I eat from this fruit, I'll have the same knowledge you have and I'll have the same access to the things you do. I don't need you if I can have this. And when that happens, God's kingdom crumbles. It's compromised. And what's their reaction? Well, your next blank there is Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. How do they respond by rejecting God's rule and trying to establish their own kingdom. Here's what Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 says. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The tree that they once approached thinking this was going to establish their own kingdom, they hid behind in pure shame when they realized they made a huge mistake. They realized they could not live in their own kingdom. In the presence of a holy God, they were shameful. And their immediate reaction was to hide. God is holy. They realized they weren't. So the same tree that made them sinful, they hide behind, trying to get out of the presence of God. And God begins to call out to them. And as we see the rest of Genesis chapter 3, He brings down the curse of man. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. So death enters the world, disease enters the world, and something else that shatters God's kingdom temporarily happens. They're kicked out of the garden, so they're no longer God's people living in God's place. The full manifestation of God's sweet presence enters into the kingdom of heaven, and here on earth we're crying out for God to come back. We want to be reunited with God, and sin has separated us. So God's kingdom is compromised because His people are no longer in His place living under his rule and blessing. 
This is the kingdom of God all the way up until Genesis chapter 3. But it's just the beginning of the story. We know that God is sovereign. He's fully in control. God knows the beginning from the end. God already knows every hair on your head, the final breath that you're going to take, your, your place in His kingdom eternally. God knows all of it already. And so as God created Adam and Eve, yes, He was grieved over their sin. We see that with Noah and the ark. He was so grieved over the sin of the world that He flooded the world, but He also kept a lineage of righteousness through, through Noah. Yet at the same time, He knew all this was going to happen from the beginning, and He had a plan. The passage that we've been talking about for weeks now is Genesis 3.15, that promise that he made as he was handing down the curse to the serpent. All right, He said, I'm going to put enmity, which means hatred, as he's speaking to the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring, and your offspring's going to bruise her offspring's heel, but her offspring's going to crush your offspring's head. Basically, a Messiah was going to come and redeem people from their sin. But in doing so, he was going to reestablish the kingdom of God. And this is so important. God's plan in establishing his kingdom was interrupted, but it's not the end of the story. It just moves us right along. Okay, as we move on now to point four, pointing to a covenant promise. Pointing to a covenant promise. So what happens? God says he's going to bring a Messiah, and then later on in the book of Genesis, we see many, many years down the road, he sees a righteous man named Abraham. And he decides before his son shows up on the scene, what he's going to do to reestablish his kingdom is he's going to call to himself a holy nation. And he begins with a covenant promise that he makes to Abram, who he later names Abraham. And he makes this covenant promise to him. What is it that he says? Well, uh, your next blank there is Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 2. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 2. All right, now listen carefully to these words because maybe if you've read this before, you haven't thought about the concept of the kingdom of God in this passage. But listen closely. Here's what it says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now think about our definition of what the kingdom of God is. And how it applies to this passage. Remember, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Now listen, look at this passage now. Abram was 99. God appears to him and he says, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Come into my presence. Come under my rule. And guess what? You'll have my blessing. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And what does he mean by multiply? He means through his own lineage, his own bloodlines, his own descendants, he would have a holy nation that would follow him. And that nation was going ultimately to point to God in the reestablishing of his kingdom. Here's how it works. Again, I've said this for several weeks and I feel it bears repeating even again because I never want us to leave this church thinking that when God chose the nation of Israel, he was trying to play favorites. Because as we know in James, in the book of James, God is not a God who plays favorites. But what did God do? God said, when I, when I created the Garden of Eden, I was creating a kingdom. And this kingdom was supposed to be perfect. And they were supposed to be obedient and live under my rule. And I'd be in their presence and I would bless them. What happened? They disobeyed. So this holy kingdom is going to be a nation set aside from the rest of the sinful world. And then this nation was going to be a reflection 
of God's holiness to the rest of the world and, and proof to the world that he wants to reestablish his kingdom. He wants to have his people in his place living under his rule to receive his blessing. And he makes this promise to Abraham, if you're faithful to me and you walk before me and you're blameless, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. As you see in that picture, as Abraham's looking up to the moon, he can count the stars, and if he could number them, then he could number how great this nation is going to be. This is how he called out the nation. And that, and that moves us on to our next point, point five. Calling out a chosen nation. Calling out a chosen nation. So here's... You know, when we see the end of Genesis and on into uh, the book of Exodus is where we begin to see this nation called out and this new idea of the kingdom being established. All right, your next blank is Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. All right, here's what the passage says. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, once again... What's the definition of kingdom? God's people in God's place under God's rule receiving God's blessing. Okay? He's saying, I will take you to be my people. So those are God's people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He's saying, you're my people. You're, you're, I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to take you out from the land of the Egyptians and I give you freedom in a land of milk and honey. And if you live by my rule, I will give you my blessing. So his, his kingdom is being reestablished. Now look how this works. Follow me along in point five here, okay? How would God do this? Well, look at, look at the progression in Exodus, okay? God would be there, would be their God, okay? By traveling with them by a pillar of cloud and fire, Exodus 13, showering down manna from heaven to feed them, Exodus 16, giving them a holy law to live in, be, in obedience to, Exodus 20, dwelling in their presence daily through a tabernacle, Exodus 26, and establishing a Levitical priesthood to carry out these holy laws while making sacrificial atonement when they sinned. God was reestablishing His kingdom. He was going to be with them. He was going to feed them. He was going to govern them. God's people in God's place under God's rule receiving God's blessing. So the nation of Israel is a picture that God is reestablishing this kingdom. Okay, that moves us on to point number six. We're making really good progress here. We have plenty of time for discussion at the pace we're going. All right, so we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, all right, after Exodus and then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are the books of the law, the first five books of the Scriptures we call the Pentateuch. Well, after Deuteronomy, we get into Joshua, and then we see this story of the history of the nation of Israel and what is Israel? They're disobedient. All right, remember, under God's rule is a part of that part of God's kingdom. They could not obey the rule of God. They consistently broke God's law. Now, here's the key, and let's not get this wrong. God never expected, it was not God's intention that they would perfectly keep the law because He knew they couldn't do it. What He wanted them to do was to have faith in Him and to live in faithfulness and live in repentance and live in the belief that God would eventually bring a Messiah to redeem them from their sins. The law was created to show them how sinful they really are. Remember today we were talking about in the, in the sermon this morning about gossip and how the tongue is, is basically a reflection of the soul. And when we speak words of gossip, it, it's proof to us that our soul still needs some work. 
Well, the law is the same way. As they tried to obey the laws of Moses, they couldn't keep them. They constantly disobeyed God. They could not live in this kingdom rule because they had no ability in their own effort to be fully obedient. They needed a Savior to do it for them. So the law, as we read in Galatians, was a tutor. It was a mirror. It was a reflection of their sinfulness. And it pointed to the need that they would have a Redeemer who would keep the law for them. That was always God's intention. Since the very beginning of time, God intended to bring His Son into the world to redeem the world and restore relationship with Him in a new kingdom. That was always God's rule. That was always God's desire. So what happens here in the Old Testament is, You have these prophets who begin to make this picture a little bit clearer, a little bit clearer, and a little bit clearer. All right, here's what I mean. Why is it that we have 66 books? Why could God not hand down the whole Bible at one time? Well, we have what is called progressive revelation. God's so big that we can't understand Him all at one time. All right? It's taken us thousands and thousands of years to watch him progressively reveal who he is to the world. And if you notice in Genesis all the way to Revelation, we begin to understand a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more about who God is, about what God's plan is, and how we fit into that plan. So as we get on through the Old Testament, we see and hear these prophecies where it's pointing to something greater than the law that was handed down through Moses to the people of Israel. We see in Jeremiah 30, chapter 31, okay, we see that God said, I know I made this covenant with Abraham, but I'm going to make a new covenant. Whereas the old covenant, the laws were written on stone tablets. The new covenant, these laws will be written on the hearts of my people. And then we see another, uh, another prophecy in the book of Ezekiel. Your next blank here is Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 27. All right, now listen to this prophecy. It's very similar to Jeremiah 31. Here's what it says. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will, that, that I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, what's the definition of God's kingdom? God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, and receiving God's blessing. They could not do it on their own. So what does God say? One of these days, if you're my people, I'm going to take out that heart of stone, I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, and you will live under my rule, and you will receive my blessings, but it won't be by your power, it will be by the power of the Holy Spirit that I put inside you. Because you have proven over and over, you can't do it yourself. He's going to send His Son to obey the law where we failed, And then He's going to send His Spirit to dwell in us to help us to be obedient where we can't be obedient in our own power. Again, think about what I said this morning. How do we tame the untamable tongue? In your own power, you can't do it. We're just so sinful. We're so geared towards sin. In our own power, it'll never happen. Moral reform does not work unless the heart changes. The heart has to change. It has to. All right? When the heart changes, everything else follows suit. And that's why God's saying, you know, you got a heart of stone. Israel, I've been watching you for hundreds of years, and your patterns are exactly the same. You beg me to redeem you. I eventually redeem you. I restore you and bless you. 
Then you get arrogant and you walk away from me again. And, you, and, then, and then when I take my blessing away, you cry out to be redeemed again. And the cycle goes over all the way through, especially in the book of Judges. You see this cycle is like a washing machine. The cycles just happen repeatedly over and over and over again. Mankind could not keep the law because they had a heart problem. And God says, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take out that stony heart. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit in you. My son's going to fulfill the law for you. And if you live by faith... You will be a part of my kingdom because you will be my people, you will live in my place, and you will be under my rule and experience my blessing. So that moves us on now to point number seven, announcing the kingdom's arrival. So we've had these glimpses, we've had these pictures of the kingdom of God. I'm sure the nation of Israel is wondering how all this is going to unfold. Again, the nation of Israel thought that God would send this Messiah, and the way that the the Messiah would establish the kingdom is to be a mighty warrior and slay the Romans. That's what they were expecting. Israel's waiting, waiting, waiting for their knight in shining armor to come in with, with the sword, and by the sword, slay the Roman Empire, and the kingdom would be established through political power. That's not how God envisioned establishing his kingdom. It was not a mighty warrior who rode in on a stallion, okay? It was a suffering servant who rode in on a donkey. Completely different story. And what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene after all his years of working quietly in the carpenter's shop with Joseph? He steps out into public ministry as he wanders all over the Sea of Galilee and all over Capernaum and into, into Judea. How is it, what is it that Jesus says over and over and over again? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And all the people are saying, what do you mean the kingdom of God is at hand? Where is this warrior that's going to come and slay the Romans and get us out of this bondage that we're in. Where is he at? And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God comes in a way that is unforeseen by men. You've been waiting for a warrior, and here I am, a suffering servant. And the kingdom is going to be established not by power, not by politics, but by a crucifixion and a resurrection from the dead. They weren't expecting it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't hear Jesus. They were deaf to his words. It must have sounded strange to them. I mean, think about it. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 is your next blank there. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He shows up on the scene. In this passage, he's basically calling his disciples to be with him. They're dropping the nets on the, on the fishing boats, and they're going to follow him. And he's saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe this good news. The kingdom of God, the reestablishing of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing is finally here right now and it's going to happen because I, the Lord Jesus, am here to restore it. And people missed it. They did not realize what He was doing. They did not realize how desperately they needed Him. And a couple of other really important things happened. I didn't have a whole lot of space, so I'm going I'm to mention some things that are not in the notes. But as, as this idea of the kingdom of God comes into clearer focus, Jesus also introduces this new word called church. He had, they had not previously heard this word before. And when, did, when does it happen? All right, as we, as we see it in Scripture, they're basically standing around the campfire and, and, they're, and they're giving reports of what happened when the disciples went out and shared the gospel. And, and all of a sudden, they're talking about, well, this person says you're this and this person says you're this. And then Jesus says, well, that's great, but who do you say I am? And what happens? 
Simon Peter confesses that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And what is, what is it that Jesus says? It is not flesh and blood that have revealed this to you, Simon Barjona, but my Father in heaven. And I'm going to name you the rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this idea of the kingdom of God is now centered on this word called church. All right. In the Old Testament, you had the nation of Israel. If you wanted to talk about their physical meeting place, it was the temple. When they were in exile, it was the synagogue. But this idea of a nation is now being shifted into an idea called church. And what does he tell the apostles, specifically Peter? I give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, what exactly does that mean? He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed, and and what you do here is going to affect heaven and eternity forever. He's telling the apostles, you have the keys to the kingdom to establish this church. What does that mean? I've seen it it, um, defined many different ways, but let me make it simple. When God was establishing his kingdom and he gave the apostles the keys to the kingdom, what he gave the apostles was a very special divinely inspired gifts miraculous gifts and also divinely inspired ability to write scripture and as God is speaking through these people God's speaking through John and God's speaking through Peter and God's speaking through all these other disciples that become apostles in the New Testament and are writers in scripture God is establishing this church and God is opening up his kingdom to more than just the nation of Israel as you read the book of Acts you see three different people groups that God's opening his kingdom to The first is the Jews. At Pentecost, you see droves of people who were of Jewish faith coming to faith in Jesus Christ. All right, then you see Peter preaching, and you see more Jews coming to faith in droves. All right, so the kingdom of God is expanded, and the Jews are the first ones to come in. Well, after that, then the Samaritans come in. And then further down the line, you see them witnessing to the Roman centurion. That means the Gentiles are coming in. So the whole world is coming into this kingdom that God established. That was his goal since the very beginning. He started in a garden with two people. And the goal was that these two people would procreate and be obedient. And that garden would get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until that garden encompassed the world. But because they were sinful, they were kicked out of the garden. And once they were kicked out of the garden, they were called to live in their own universe, in their own kingdom. But when God reestablished the kingdom, he started with Israel. But then through the church, he's opening his kingdom up once again to the whole world. That is why it is so important that we preach the gospel to all four corners of the earth. Because God wants this free offer of salvation through the good news of Jesus Christ to be offered to every living creature that calls himself a human being. That's God's desire. That's God's will to establish his kingdom and invite as many people in before the Lord Jesus returns. Because when he returns, that offer eventually will end. Now, how and when is another discussion that is often debated in Christian circles. Some people believe that when Jesus comes, the new heavens and new earth will be immediately established. Some believe in a literal thousand-year reign, and during that millennial reign, there will be others who will come to faith in Jesus. All right, so there's, there's some debate. We can talk about that at a later date. I have godly friends and scholars who hold to multiple different views, but here's what we do know, generally speaking. Eventually, Jesus will come. And eventually, when he's here, 
He will establish all things. He will make all things new. And the kingdom will finally be restored to what it was originally. What it was originally. And that leads us to finally point eight, revealing a full restoration. Okay, your last blank is this. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Now, think about this. As you read Revelation, think about the definition of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people will be with God in His place, the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem. And they will be under God's rule. God says that according to the book of Revelation, when you receive a new body, you'll live in a new heavens and new earth, and you will be perfect in every way. You will not even be able to sin. It will not even be a desire, but you will not be capable of not obeying God's rule. I'm so excited for that day because I'm going to be honest with you. I'm tired of sin. And I'm only 37. All right? I've only had 37 years at this. And I'm already burned out of sin. You know, sometimes I'm in bed at night and I say, in my prayers, I'll say, God, why do I wander from you so easily? Why? It's a part of my nature. And I'm putting that nature to death. In future weeks, we'll talk about and. Brother Eddie, you and I have studied this together, and we've talked about this with some other folks in this room. There's an idea that we never talk about in the Christian life anymore, and it's called the mortification of sin. The Bible says that we're called to put sin to death. Even though we're declared saved by the blood of Jesus, you and I are called to do things every day to put our sin to death, to turn away from it, to completely condemn it, to, to say, I'm not living in that lifestyle anymore, to cut off anything that tempts us to do that. And that's an active thing we need to do the rest of our lives. But the good news is, when God fully establishes His kingdom, and you come into this kingdom forever, in the new heavens and new earth, you're never going to sin again. And you'll never be out of God's kingdom again. Because you'll be God's people and God's place, living under God's rule and receiving God's blessing. So what do we do until then? What do we do until then? Well, the, the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 tells us to go therefore and take this good news to all four corners of the earth, baptizing everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's the key. We don't talk about this passage often, but the end of that says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Why? Because if they're God's people and they want to live in God's place, they've got to live under God's rule to receive God's blessing. Again, God's kingdom. So I think as we draw this to a close, we'll open it up for discussion. This is a really important topic. We don't talk, talk a whole lot about it because there's some mystery there, I'll be honest. But you have to stop and think. When you read any passage of Scripture, specifically the Gospels, and you see those words in red, when Jesus is mentioning something over and over and over and over and over again, you've got to stop and say, man, this has got to be really important. Because if it's that important to Jesus, it's got to be that important to me. And so we need to say that the kingdom of God is very important. And right now, God's plan to establish His kingdom is through His church the church right now is god's plan a and he doesn't have any more plan b how does he establish his kingdom through his church all right so that's why it's so important that we go and preach the gospel and and offer this gift of salvation and bring as many people as we can from all backgrounds and walks of life to be a part of his church yes 
It's great to have fellowship, and that's important. Yes, it's great to have ministry programs, and there's a goal for that purpose. Ultimately, God is calling us to build His kingdom. And I feel like God's given me a wonderful platform to do that here at Cedar Street Baptist Church. Amen?